Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Today's guest is Joe Norman, a freelance complex systems and data scientist and aspiring homestead farmer. Hey, Jim. How you doing? Doing real good. Joe's been associated with the New England Complex Systems Institute, often identified by the acronym NECSI, and has published articles with people there. So he's another complexity guy like me, but I must confess, I've been a Santa Fe Institute bigot since I first read John Holland's Adaptation in Natural and Artificial Systems, and soon thereafter, Stuart Kaufman's Origins of Order. And truthfully, I know relatively little about uh, NECSI. Maybe, uh, Joe, you could give us a short version of your at least academic life life and tell us what drew you to NECSI and uh, what it's about. Sure, absolutely. So just to make it even easier, we call it Nexi. Nexi, even easier. Yep, yep. So it's very hard to say and then moderately hard to say and then easy to say. So Nexi is good. So I did my PhD at Florida Atlantic University at the Center for Complex Systems and Brain Sciences. There I studied self-organization of perception, dynamics, pattern formation, all, all in the domain of visual perception. After that, I was really looking to expand the scope of what I was looking at. And Nexi had caught my interest. I had attended a course there during grad school, a two-week-long course taught by Yanir Baryam, who's the president and founder, as well as Hiroki Sayama, who's now at Binghamton University and one of a very very fine complex system scientist, I will say. And, you know, what really caught my eye about Nexi was an attention to real world problems, including engineering and design problems. And so how complex systems not only is sort of a, an interesting way of understanding the world, but what it can actually do to make differences for real problems that people face. So I headed up to Nexi at that point, spent a couple of years there as a postdoc. I'm currently an affiliate there. And I'm also an instructor at the Real World Risk Institute. And we also have an acronym for that RWRI and we say Ruri. It's a lot of R's in there. And that's Nassim Taleb's school. We run it three times a year out of New York City. And I just do a few hours of lecturing there each time. And so that's another point of involvement with the complex systems community and its application to real world issues. Hey, what drew you to the study of complexity? As, as we both know, it's a relatively small field. Well, actually, I can say it kind of runs in the family. My father worked for many years at Mitre Corporation, and he kind of developed himself into and really is a pioneer in the field of complex systems engineering. So when I was a kid, there was always, you know, you mentioned Stu Kaufman, for instance, John Holland. These books were around when I was a kid and I'd pick them up and look at them and read them, kind of casually browse them. And, you know, I was much more interested in skateboarding, but it kind of started to sink in. I think at that point, as I got a little older, I started looking during college at philosophy of mind. And that drew me towards some systems thinking, for instance, of Francisco Varela, Humberto Maturana around autopoiesis, and obviously the sort of development of AI from symbolic AI through connectionism, etc. And really, I started to link up all of those ideas, what I was naturally kind of pulled towards and these ideas of complexity and emergence and self-organization. And so really a lot of connections started to light up for me then. And it's kind of just been a gradual one step at a time since then. Yeah, it's interesting how people take different paths. Hell, my dad was a cop, so I never saw any of this kind of stuff, right? But uh, in the later days of my business career, I stumbled on to, it's an interesting story, how you know, little chance happenings change one's life. I happened to see a one paragraph little blurb in Scientific American about something called genetic algorithms. What the hell is that, I say? It sounds interesting. Let me look it up. I can't tell you the exact date, but it must have been uh, within a few months of Amazon starting because I, I think the, one of the earliest books in my Amazon books ordered is Adaptation and natural and artificial systems. And I read that and I go, whoa, this is quite interesting. And then I found Origins of Order, read that. And then from there, I kind of used that parallax to discover the Santa Fe Institute and uh, kind of started uh, drilling into that. And I started using complexity thinking in my business career, particularly things like coevolutionary fitness landscapes, which actually turns out to be very useful in thinking about corporate growth and particularly M&A. And then when I retired, uh, I started doing some work that came to the attention of Santa Fe Institute, and they invited me out there. Uh, I was going to go out for a year as a researcher in residence, ended up staying 10 years and ended up as the chairman of the place. You know, weird things, all from reading one paragraph in Scientific American. And as I hoped, complexity science turned out to be a deep enough domain to keep me from going back to work. That was my real fear, right? It's rich enough to last a lifetime. Uh, of course, you know, as we both know, uh, there's a lot of things that call themselves complexity science. What do you do? 
describe as a domain of complexity science that you're interested in? Well, as I said, I'm really interested in this idea of applied complexity science. So not just the understanding of some of the themes and features of complexity, emergence, self-organization, et cetera, but how do those actually impact our decision-making? So you mentioned an interesting one, coevolution and coevolutionary fitness landscapes. So how does coevolution, for example, fit into how we structure organizations? What does that mean for how we expect them to work? And so my current sort of professional interest is addressing those questions of, okay, how do we now go apply? But with respect to what is complexity science per se, you know, it's really Stu Kaufman that crystallized the idea in my mind about what's really essential about either a set of phenomena we're interested in or a system that we're interested in or set of objects, whatever it may be, is that what's crucial, what's essential about them isn't actually in the stuff that they're made of as we usually think about it. It's actually in the organization of the stuff. And this started to really click for me. It started to make a lot of sense because, you know, sort of, especially in the West, I'll say, we're very much exposed to reductionism almost as an underlying, we we treat as an obvious assumption underlying all of our investigations, the way we understand the world. And for me, like I said, it was really Kaufman and his his focus on organization. I remember he, uh, for a time at least, used the term propagation of organization that really stuck with me. And it, it just lit up a light bulb in my mind where I said, aha, this is really the key. They were keying in on something essential here. What systems are and how they produce behaviors, how they interact with other systems, etc., are all really about patterns. And these patterns exist at different scales. So it's organization. Organization is really important because it's about constraints and structure on interactions. So complexity is really about the way interactions give rise to phenomena. So these are some of the themes that really capture me and I find important and essential to understand the world. And some of the more, even currently, edge thinking that I'm really uh, attracted to, you know, is put forward by folks like Chris Alexander, another SFI guy, where all of a sudden we have, not only are we moving beyond reductionism in terms of emergence of novel properties, but also the way that whole systems, say a, a single organism, give rise to what we can kind of part out and analyze as the parts of the system. So very much unlike the way we we construct uh, systems, artificial systems often, a organic and, and growing complex system develops and will actually synthesize its own components, functional components, etc. And this is very much beyond what reductionism as a philosophy can really speak to. And, and so I, I feel like that's really where the edge of the thinking is, is how do we now not only have emergent properties, but how do we have things like functional properties, say in the organ of an organism, arising out of not only that piece of the system, but that piece and how it relates to the context that gave rise to it. And I just feel that we're only at the beginning, really, of grappling with that kind of a dynamic. Great. I love it. I think we must have come in through a very similar door because the uh, simple metaphor I used for people back home to explain complexity versus reductionism is I would say the study of the dancer is reductionism. The study of the dance is complexity. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. And I really like that because the dance is something that is kind of playful. It's organic. It's not a recipe. It has structure, but it's not sort of pre-formulated. And I think that's so much of what we experience in the world is really the spontaneous kind of, could call it sort of game playing or dancing. And we don't really have a great handle on that. And in fact, even the sort of structure of formal systems proper don't play well in a crucial way with that kind of spontaneous playfulness that, that we actually observe in the world. And even built systems that involve humans have that attribute, even if the designers didn't intend them to, because humans are willful little sons of bitches, right? I worked in corporate America much of my life, half startups and half big corporations. And I would always tell every new CEO, you know, all those buttons and levers that are uh, theoretically on your desk, most of them aren't connected to anything, right? You can press all those buttons, pull all those levers, not a goddamn thing will happen because the corporate equivalent of deep state will keep on doing what it's doing in its own self-organizing, self-interested agency risk fashion. And if they do manage to do anything at all, as you mentioned, most likely whatever those consequences are will be unintended ones as opposed to whatever that executive imagined the effect would be. So we just have so many uh, interdependencies and and subtle effects and variables and unidentified relevant variables, et cetera. So when you pull on that lever, you think A is going to happen and maybe A happens, maybe A doesn't happen, but you often get X, Y, and Z instead. Indeed. The other topic you mentioned is one that's also of considerable interest to me. I will say I'm not an expert in it. 
it. I probably do need to read more on it. And this is this, as you say, cutting edge thinking about the distinctions between uh, holes and their components. Uh, some people I use a phrase, which to my mind is still a little hazy, downward causality, that somehow the whole creates an ecosystem, an environment that supports the existence of the parts. I think actually the reality is something even more strange than that. But have you heard of the term downward causality? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, downward causation, exactly. This is an attempt to grapple with this issue of, well, if emergence is not merely epistemic, but in some sense ontologic, then what does it mean when we say something new emerges? Is it somehow contradicting the lower level properties if not everything is arising from them? So downward causation is an attempt to start to deal with that problem. Now, I also have had, I don't have any strong feelings on downward causation, except I wonder if it is the right frame. And I actually really like the way you framed it with respect to sort of a, a, novel domain emerges that supports new dynamics that wouldn't be present otherwise without that domain. Now, is that sort of top causing bottom? Maybe, maybe that's not the right way to think about it though. Maybe it's a, you know, emergent constraints. And then from those constraints, you can get novel structures and patterning, but I don't have a firm commitment one way or the other, but I do think it's at that edge that I was talking about. And downward causation is one kind of keyword, call it, that sort of signifies that issue that's at stake. I don't know if anyone has done work that's very convincing on that, you know, there's a fellow, Eric Hole, who has done some work about using the idea of error correcting codes and coarse graining to account for some of that. But none of it that I've seen has been totally satisfactory in terms of, okay, this really captured the essence. And, and I do like, again, what you said in terms of a developing and emerging domain that then enables novel dynamics to happen. I mean, you think of something like Turing's morphogenesis patterns, right? Turing patterns. And you know, Turing was really onto something with that, no doubt about it. But what it leaves out is the fact that the media that those patterns are occurring on in biological systems is actually provided by the organism itself. So when the skin, say, develops into stripes on a fish, those stripes and the development of those stripes can be somewhat accounted for, at least by reaction diffusion systems, things like that. You can think of it as, but there's this kind of interesting causal loop where, yes, but it's the organism developing that's generating the domain for those Turing patterns. So there's something we're not quite capturing when we say just look at Turing patterns. In fact, I have some unfortunately unpublished, and that's just sort of a priority stack issue, but unpublished work I'm doing to actually deal with some of that issue and how you can think of nested layers of pattern formation where, say, a bounded organism is forming and creating conditions for other sort of sub patterns to be generated within that domain. Yeah, I also think it's hard to get one's head around until one thinks about temporal depth, right? Particularly with respect to natural systems. I think one of the truest statements about biology is nothing makes sense in biology without respect to evolution. And so if we think about the whole providing an ecosystem that has some degrees of freedom for evolution to work in, we can start thinking about uh, this whole and parts co-evolution, essentially, right? So you can look at a series of generations. Don't look at a static developmental framework in a short period of time, but rather, you know, multiple generations. You know, the whole provides some degrees of freedom for the internal parts. You know, a person's liver can be bigger or smaller without killing them, though it probably has some impact on their phenotypical fitness, right? And vice versa. You know, there's some changes uh, at the top. Let's say you the organism and all of its components, including its brain and its social systems, discover a new way of eating, right? Or find a new food that's richer in things that are good for the liver. And so the liver can get smaller. And so less of our energy is spent on liver function and more can be spent on brain function. So you have uh, over a time depth, you have a very interesting co-evolution going on between the phenotypical full organism level and its structural components. That's absolutely true. And, and, you know, one of the things that Kaufman really hammers home is that these sort of functional roles that different structures play over that evolutionary time are pretty fluid in, in the sense that just because a structure plays function A today doesn't mean it couldn't play some other function tomorrow. And a striking example of that is the jawbone in our long distant lizard-like ancestors. At some point in evolution, it began to become perhaps, we're not sure, but perhaps vestigial in 
the sense that it became small and not responsible for articulating the jaw anymore. And there was another bone that evolved that did serve that function, but the structures didn't disappear. What they did is migrated towards sort of where our inner ear now exists and became our inner ear bones that allow us to transduce pressure waves into nerve impulses, otherwise known as hearing. So something that was once for the mouth to open and close became later for hearing, which seemed worlds apart, yet evolution doesn't mind. It will kind of grab what's available and and through that process of co-evolution, discover really interesting, novel, functional purposes. And this is something of practical import. So you mentioned that you found co-evolution really useful for thinking about say, organizations. And this is because things like this can emerge and they're not something that anyone would necessarily imagine. They're not necessarily even pre-statable in in terms of state space, which is a really interesting possibility. So exactly right. Unless we look at the fullness of time, we don't really have a good handle on these things. So I guess uh, another piece, I sort of hinted at it, but that's really essential for me to think about complex systems is that we're always really facing patterns that exist at multiple scales. So that's multiple spatial scales. That's also certainly multiple time scales. So that functional fluidity, I think is huge. And it also speaks to the way we think about engineering, say in terms of imagine someone engineering the organism that became us. And at some point, they said, I don't really understand what these old jawbones are doing. So let's actually optimize them right out and make this system much more optimal because it's wasting resources. And well, you know, if that had happened, then we would have missed the opportunity to hear. Yep, absolutely. And it turns out my uh, actual deep scientific expertise is in evolutionary computation. And we see this all the time in, let's say, genetic programming, right? If you don't manage your genetic program, which is essentially a way to evolve programs, right? You start with sort of random programs and you do crossover mutation, you get better programs to solve problems. And you can quickly get bloat where you get lots and lots of what seems like dead code. And as you say, there are optimization algorithms one can do. In fact, you can actually just put a very heavy tax on length and that will cause evolution to select for shorter programs and hence squeeze out most of the bloat. But it's now well known that if you squeeze out too much of the bloat, you don't have enough pieces or you don't have enough diversity for future evolution. So there's a subtle balance between sufficient diversity versus no diversity on one side and bloat, which takes too many of your resources. And here it is in a pure software evolutionary environment. And as you say, it fits in a very analogous fashion with real world evolution of animals. Well, that's fascinating, Jim. I didn't didn't know you were working on that. That's really cool stuff. And, and, you know, as you talk about it, the thing that comes to my mind is, okay, so there's sort of the the temptation is to say, well, maybe there's kind of a sweet spot for that variety. You know, like you said, uh, if it's too much bloat, it's just hogging resources. If it's not enough, it's not developing those opportunities and those those kind of adjacent possibles. But then perhaps maybe there isn't even an optimal there, but in the bigger, bigger picture, perhaps that's also a variable that requires diversity. Some environments are more supportive of a bloat and some environments are less supportive of bloat. So you kind of get variety and then meta variety, you might say. And so all of these ideas, I think, are so essential for how we're going to build systems into the 21st century, because we're pretty much beyond the point of being able to structure many systems in a sort of top down intentional way. So that's really cool. I'd love to talk to you more about the computational evolution stuff. That's very nice. Yeah, it's very cool stuff. That's really what I did in this field, mostly. As you say that, it caused, I'm just going to think out loud here, which is allowed on this show. Frowned upon in real life, but on the Jim Rutt Show, we allow thinking, right? When you, when you say diversity of bloat, what that actually means is probably the lack of tightness in the ecosystem. Typically, in, let's say in a natural system, and I, then I'll give you the computational equivalent, when a, let's say a major new innovation happens, let's say uh, fish come out onto the land, right? Suddenly they have this unbelievably cool ecosystem that they can pillage and grow and reproduce extremely rapidly with no limits for a while. But we go back to Malthus and sooner or later, uh, you reach the carrying capacity of the ecosystem and we have no extra resources really. And you know, inevitably in stasis, most species are living on the edge of starvation all the time. So during those pioneering periods, bloat 
would conceptually be okay, right? At a couple different levels, right? One, uh, because you don't have to worry about starving, which is always the number one risk. Uh, you can be a little bit less efficient. You can carry around more extra components. And when the times get tight, genes that are bloaty get selected against because they're consuming more calories per unit of reproduction and get squeezed out. Uh, you know, I would you know say the same is true uh, when trying to solve a problem in genetic programming to the degree that the ratio of the hardness to the problem to the amount of computation you have seems weighted on in the side of having lots of computation. I would hypothesize, thinking out loud here, I may actually do the experiment, that being more bloaty is good if the job is to solve the problem in the shortest period of clock time. Uh, on the other hand, if it's a really hard problem and you don't have an unlimited computation budget, then one must think more about optimizing bloat for the search space that you're in. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And I'd love to, if you end up running the experiments, I'd love to have a look and, and talk about them. And, and, you know, I guess the the challenge is, and once again, now I'm, I'm just sort of going out on a limb here and I, I would need to think about it more to have confidence, but I almost wonder if the question itself is undecidable in terms of a priori, do I know how much bloat this problem deserves, so to speak? And I, I wonder if we can answer that a priori in any reasonable fashion. I think we can intuit in many cases kind of where that balance might be struck, but whether it can be solved once for all, I'm not sure. I'm actually quite strong on that. You cannot solve it for sure forever. And why? The no free lunch theorem. David Wolpert, one of our SFI guys earlier in his career, before he came to SFI, formulated the no free lunch theorem, which is one of the most important theorems in the universe. And in fact, I divide people into people who know and practice the no free lunch theorem and those that don't. Essentially, what Wolpert proved definitively is that in an arbitrary space, there is no optimal search strategy. Every search strategy has to be optimized for the search space that it's being applied to. And I would turn your words around and say that you may not have explicitly brought to mind no free lunch, but you intuited it when you said you apply your intuition to tune a search algorithm for a search space. And that's what you do, really. There is no right answer for searching any given arbitrary search space. That, that's a great way of thinking about it. I love that. Okay, I'm going to have to bring more attention to the no free lunch theorem. Love it. It's an amazingly short, readable paper, but it, to my mind, is actually fundamental. If you don't know the no free lunch theorem, you don't actually understand the universe that we happen to be living in. So I'm glad I could offer that up to folks to read. David Wolpert, W-O-L-P-E-R-T. Another thing I saw in some of your writings as I was reading them, uh, getting prepared for this chat, is that you tend to use the word irreducibility quite a bit. You know, some schools of complexity do, some don't. Uh, I'd love to have you define that for our audience and keep in mind they're smart folks, but mostly not with backgrounds uh, in complexity science. Well, I will say that when I use the term irreducibility in general, I'm using it somewhat colloquially in the sense of I'm not referring to a specific kind of irreducibility necessarily, but rather the general concept of irreducibility. And what I mean by that is you could have, for instance, a, a very specific kind of irreducibility, such as computational irreducibility that Stephen Wolfram talks about. And in that case, he's really, you know, all of his work is founded on elementary cellular automata and the fact that they present a universal computer. And so you can kind of think about essentially any process that is computable in that framework. And in that frame, irreducibility can sort of be summarized by saying, well, there's no shortcut to the future to see how the pattern unfolds in time or what it will be at some arbitrary time in the future. You have to go through every step. So he, everything in the in his world is discrete time, discrete space, cellular automata, deterministic. Nevertheless, even with all of that determinism in the system, there's no concise sort of compressible formula to say, well, what will happen at time 1 billion or, or 10 billion or whatever it is? So it's irreducible in the sense that the whole pattern determines what happens in the pattern in the future, and there's no shortcut. So that, that's sort of a, a summary of computational irreducibility, but it really gets at this idea of irreducibility more generally, which is the idea that there's no further amount you can deconstruct the system into smaller pieces or fundamental laws or something like that that allows one to compress the system further say, sort of compress it to something, uh, a redundant pattern or a repetitive pattern, say, that allows one to kind of project in time or space, what will the system be? What will it do? How will it behave? 
And so, I mean, it comes up in other places like in cybernetics, irreducibility has to do with uh, essentially matrices and whether they can be broken down or a machine can be broken down into smaller subcomponents that behave independently. So that's the general idea. And I, I just like the term irreducibility because it really puts emphasis on that issue of you're looking at some phenomenon and it's as far down as you can get to address that phenomenon. And if you go any further, you actually destroy that phenomenon via the analysis. Yeah, it's the uh, very similar to the uh, computational measures of complexity, right? Is there any shorter way to state a problem than to just run the program, right? Right, right. Halting problem, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, back to Wolfram, I played for a while with Rule 120 to see if I could find anything there. And the answer was no, right? <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting stuff. Another sort of key fundamental building block of conversations around complexity, emergence. I'm sure you've thought about that a little bit. You know, I've, uh, some of the things I found most useful there are Harold Morowitz's book, The Emergence of Everything. And he lays out like 28 levels that's, you know, start at quarks and work their way up to the universe. And again, John Holland, a very difficult book, but a very one worth reading, Emergence from Chaos to Order. Who do you follow? Who have you read? What do you think about emergence? Holland, I've certainly read Holland. Uh, we've already mentioned Kaufman. I really enjoy Chris Alexander, who has some technical chops, but often takes a sort of informal approach to these issues because he's really thinking about the practical space of architecture in his case, but his insights really apply to so many kinds of practices. So I, everywhere from from sort of folks that have a formal treatment, you know, Robert Rosen is somebody who I feel doesn't really get enough credit and, and he deals with some of these issues with biology and the limits of formalism. So I, I look at all across all these folks, I try not to commit myself to kind of one treatment or another, but instead try to get a kind of just stalled across the space of what is everyone saying in common or the, the differences. I think what's so essential and, and does kind of cut across all the different treatments is the relationship between formal models and what happens in the world. And so much of what we experience as emergence, and this, once again, this cuts across even folks who either believe emergence is merely epistemic, meaning that it's not really happening, but according to how we understand things, we need to invoke it to help us understand what's going on to those who are more like a Kaufman who believe it's ontological and you know new things, properties arise in the universe that are novel proper. I'm very much interested in a practice oriented approach to emergence where we can kind of uh, start to think about how do we react locally to local perturbations, local variables, and respond incrementally, essentially, to small pieces of information we gather from the system as we interact with it, perturb it, and it kind of pushes back or gives us feedback. And out of these very small incremental movements, how things that we don't imagine or organizations that we never imagined or explicitly designed come out of the system that we're generally embedded in and interacting with. You did mention up front that one of my current pursuits and hopefully a lifelong pursuit is the idea is homesteading. And this has been a a really embodied experience for me since my wife and myself moved up to we live in New Hampshire now and we got a little property where we're doing this stuff. We're growing our own food. You know, we're not able to provide all of our own food, but day after day, it's more and more and we're making progress. And really there's no where we are now, even after a year of doing this, we've pursued the process for multiple years, but we've been living on this property for a year now. I wouldn't have known what to do, even simple things like, where do I put this fence? Where do I put this gate? Where do I put this garden bed? Where do I fell this tree? Why this tree? Why not that tree? All these little tiny decisions over time are actually evolving into systems of behavior that we're embodying where there's sort of emerging semantic relationships out of the different pieces and parts of the property. Oh, this is the part where uh, the compost collects and, and it's uphill. And that's useful because, you know, until we collect the compost to spread somewhere intentionally, it's now running down the hill into the garden. So it's even passively helping to fertilize the garden beds, things like that. It's just small things here and there, things I didn't imagine up front and couldn't have designed, but they're emerging out of our small incremental interactions over time. Yep. That's really interesting. Yeah, and uh, just as an interesting, isn't the world strange? I uh, originally ran across Joe when a friend of mine said, Hey, you ought to talk to Joe Norman. He's a smart guy interested in local agriculture. And I had no idea. He was a complexity dude. How about that? 
Oh, it's a beautiful intersection. There's not enough of it. There is some, and especially in when you do start to look into the local ag, even without it being explicitly called out, so many of the insights of complexity are are embedded in there. And, you know, for instance, in, in permaculture and, and some of these other philosophies. We had uh, Joel Salatin out at the Santa Fe Institute one time. That was quite interesting. I love Joel. I, lo- I mean, I haven't met him in person, but I love his writings. So, so that's really cool. That must have been fun. Joel's a neighbor. We live close to Joel. We know him reasonably well. I uh, run into him fairly frequently. He's a, he is an amazing character, a true American innovator. And his books are, are well worth reading. My favorite is Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. Great title. And that's a, a really interesting book. And, and he is right at the cutting edge of, of helping to rethink what local agriculture might actually mean. Though I will say we did not really successfully inoculate him with the complexity uh, virus. But I think maybe we helped his perceptions a little bit. He certainly helped our perceptions a little bit by bringing in more practice oriented things, uh, you know, more in the applied space. I'm going to jump here a little bit. When I was preparing for this, I like to prepare five to 10 hours for each guest. And one of the things I ran across was your dissertation. And I read that with considerable interest. It was on the perception of objects in motion. And I particularly like the fact that you referenced one of my favorite cognitive scientists who actually sort of became an anti-cognitive scientist later, J.J. Gibson. If you're up to it, maybe talk a little bit about you know, what you learned in doing the work for your dissertation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So J.J. Gibson is wonderful. Um, He is, you know, his his most famous book is The Ecological Approach to Visual Perception. What he means by ecological is not necessarily the way you think of ecology in terms of, oh, we're looking at interactions of of organisms or something like that. But the fact that the living human or any living organism with vision in this case is embedded within an ecological system. And that has some profound implications for how we think about perception. You know, one of his key concepts is this idea of affordance and an affordance is a we could call it an atom of perception that is action oriented or implies some set of possibilities for action so his idea is we don't perceive abstract physical properties of the environment we're not gathering sense data to reconstruct a kind of physical theory of what's out there but rather what we're doing is picking up opportunities for us to act on the environment or or within the environment so you might think of something like a branch is graspable. And so you don't see that the branch is, you know, approximately cylindric or something like that. You see, no, I can actually grab that with my hand and pull on it and pull myself up this tree. So it's, it's very much an action oriented, um, heuristic kind of, you might think of base idea of perception. And what this really starts to draw out is that what we think of as perception is really a relational property. So we often, again, from, from this kind of Western reductionistic canon think of, okay, we have a brain and inside that brain we're modeling the world out there but when you think about well what does it mean for a branch say to be graspable well now i'm invoking the structure of the organism itself as well because there's a relationship between say the size of the branch and the size of a hand that can grip it these are some of the ideas that jj gibson introduced and are, are so powerful and really can affect the way you look at the interaction of organism and environment and what it means for an organism to be structured and what that means for the experience and the and the perception of the organism and this is also related to ideas of like um felt like a like an animal or a species has a certain kind of life world that they inhabit and that life world is with respect to the structure of the organism itself now how this worked into my dissertation i actually in large part included jj gibson in my dissertation as a nod to where i felt i fell short which is i did a lot of psychophysical experimentation looking at perception of motion of folks sitting and looking at a computer screen and having some frames flash and asking them if they're able to to discern shapes uh what they saw with respect to patterns of motion and i think i uncovered some really important things doing that but at the same time there was an ever-present awareness that this is not like an ecological setting. There, there's something much different about sitting in a testing room, looking at a computer screen and, and answering questions. Now, I will say that to do justice to that setting, that is itself an ecological setting of a kind. But one needs to always maintain the awareness that that is a very specific, a very special setting and not a general setting. And there are, in fact, some features of more general settings that might be important to and certainly are important to understand how what I would 
always discovering really is important or not important perhaps to ecological perception. So what I looked at was the way that I looked at several things, but for instance, the way that certain patterns, visual patterns are multi-stable. So you can show the same pattern to either different people or the same person at different times and what they perceive is different one time versus another. So we looked at the dynamics of that. We looked at some of the older literature we spoke to in psychophysics that did some poor statistics, frankly, and, and assumed some things that were not quite right and showed, no, there's different kinds of visual information that people are using for different kinds of processes and really showed that the response is, is quite a nonlinear one. And, and you can capture a lot of very different seeming stimuli with a concise model. And I, what I did is I modeled a dynamical neural network and showed that a very generic pattern of interaction among the neurons in the neural network uh, exposed to patterns looked a, a lot like, I'll say, very, very close to what people perceive across these patterns. And that connected it to the gestalt psychology with respect to sort of perceptual principles and embody those principles in something a little more hard-coded, say, in, in a mathematical and computational model. Yeah, I found it very interesting because my biggest single personal project is building a uh, rudimentary conscious cognition embedded in an ecosystem modeled on a white-tailed deer. And I used Gibson as a significant part of my inspiration. I thought of what you were doing as the, if it's true, we'll someday maybe find out, as one of the building blocks on which these phenomena are built. Because I didn't specify down at that level. I'm working at a higher level. And I assume something like that is going on, which delivers into the uh, global workspace objects and set of affordances, which are actually discovered over time, relationships, motion, et cetera. And uh, so it was like right next door neighbor of the work that I do. And I said, wow, you know, I wish I'd read this when I first started working on it. I don't know. I might've built a little bit more down in that direction. Oh, that's interesting. You know, there's two directions that if I had continued on that particular path, I, I was planning to pursue and, and things just changed and I didn't put any more time into them. But one was indeed that, okay, let's start embedding this in agents that are in an environment and exactly that. So let's start to see if they can discover affordances. The other was the fact that I looked at these things so often that I became very good at controlling what I was perceiving. So most of the subjects were sort of, you know, they, they experienced it as a passive reception of they either saw this or they saw that, whereas I could decide in real time what I was seeing. And I started to, to run some experiments that showed that there were definite time scales at which this did happen over and therefore also didn't happen over. And they were different than the time scales of the perception itself, sort of just to say it quickly, if the motion patterns were too fast, you could still perceive the motion, but you could no longer control it. Whereas if they, you slowed them down to a certain critical speed, you could start to actually control which pattern you were perceiving. And I think that this has some, there, there's some deep connections between these two as well. And with that question of perceptual learning and how we discover affordances over time. I can give you a great perceptual learning example. And once it happened to me about seven years ago, I've been extremely interested in perceptual learning. You know, as a farmer myself, every spring I spend about uh, seven to 10 days eradicating invasive weeds that are trying to attack my field, spraying specific invasives, right? And they were coralberry, barberry, and autumn olive, right? And after seven to 10 days of riding around four or five hours a day and making a real-time decision on which is one of those three species before you zap it. When I was near done with it, as I'd ride up the roads in a nearby town, any invasive species in people's fields just like blinked at me. It was amazing, right? They just pop. It was an astounding, you know, just really strong example of perceptual learning. And since then, I've taken the perceptual learning literature much more seriously than I ever did before. That's right. And once again, just to draw on my recent experiences uh, of beginning the homestead lifestyle is just that when I first got here, Jim, I didn't even want to like clip a branch. I was like, what am I going to screw up if I clip this branch? And over time, I'm developing the perception of sort of seeing out in time a little further where I can see, you know, if I let this thing go, where will it kind of tend to go? If I clip it now, what will tend to happen, say, around it? It's going to let more light in and things like that. So I, I think that perception 
conceptual learning is really essential. And it's fascinating the way we kind of have to step into the unknown because you can't know what it's like to perceive something you haven't perceived yet. So you have to continue to put yourself into the situation over and over where these kind of serendipitous moments can happen where something clicks inside of you. It's it's certainly some kind of self-organizational process can't be top-down directed, but something snaps and all of a sudden you can see something you couldn't see before. You have a tool that the higher level systems can use also, which is, you know, once that perceptual learning is clicked in, you can operate much more rapidly in targeting your invasives. Anyway, let's flip back now to talking about complex systems. And one of the things that, you know, it did trigger some thoughts in my head as I was reading your dissertation is the relationship between complex system science and modeling and simulations. You know, some people say, hey, you really can't do these probes on complex systems. And at some level, they're correct. But at other levels, they're not. I mean, we, we do do probes on complex systems with both models and thinking through the implications of models and sort of more quick and dirty with simulations. Have you given any thought to where model building and simulations fit into the explorations of complexity science? Yeah, absolutely. And so from an applied perspective, where we're really trying to solve a problem, understand a system that we need to interact with better, that we're trying to get something from, I think the number one utility to modeling is to make assumptions very explicit. So we have to, if we want a computer simulation to run, we have to write down what are the assumptions that are being made so that it can unfold its behavior in time. Making those assumptions very explicit, and then when we go back to the system to observe the real natural system, determining whether we've made those the right assumptions. So, you know, modeling and simulation is often considered in the paradigm of prediction, sort of build the model, run it forward in time and predict what's going to happen. There's a lot of problems with that. It can work under certain conditions, but I think that that's a secondary kind of a utility of modeling. And really this primary utility is to, did we get the assumptions right? You know, agent-based modeling, I think one of the really powerful aspects of it is that because we're able to make a large set of micro assumptions, we can actually see the difference in the aggregate behavior between what unfolds from that agent-based model and what maybe we would have thought would unfold if we did some more macro level formal modeling. Say, for example, say we're modeling a hospital and looking at how infections might propagate through a hospital. You know, there's, there's this issue where you go to the hospital and you're trying to get better, but you might pick up an infection while you're there because there's a lot of other sick people around and whatnot. So let's say we're modeling that. And if we want to do an agent-based model, we could say, okay, we can model a surface. We can make some assumptions about if someone touches the surface and they have, say, this bacteria on their hand, maybe there's some probability that it transfers to that surface. Now someone else comes to touch that surface. So we can model really at that very micro level where our assumptions are actually probably pretty good relative to our macro assumptions. Whereas if we wanted to do some high level mathematical modeling of that system, we might assume something like, for instance, that some set of events are independent, like my touching a surface and you're touching a surface are some kind of independent events where they might actually have interdependencies and therefore follow different kinds of distributions. And so that's just to give a little bit of crystallization to this general idea that really we are the worst at understanding our own assumptions and identifying where they're faulty. And modeling and simulation can allow us to draw them out, force them to become explicit, and give us an opportunity to adjust them as we observe the real system, the natural system. I like that way of thinking. Let me add one additional thing, which I often do when people are talking about models, agent-based models or physical simulations, which is on one side, it helps you clarify your assumptions. And on the second, as you pointed out, one should not believe any given trajectory, right? However, I do believe that once a model has been well-developed and the assumptions vetted by experts and by the best available evidence, one can often learn some interesting things from ensemble statistics of large numbers of runs, right? For instance, we can find out if we're in mediocristan or extremistan in the NNT type language, right? We can see how much variance is there between the runs because the beauty of agent-based models, if they're not too big, you can run them a million times, right? You can really get a sense of what statistical distribution of outcomes are are we likely to see with this set of assumptions? I add that as something that people often miss when they think about what can you do with uh, simulations or models. That's right. And I, I would never take a model too 
too, too seriously that didn't have some uh, stochasticity involved so that you run it, you know, many times over and look at the ensemble. That said, there is always the danger that even across those who say build models in principle, it seems like independently, there are subtle ways for non-independence of assumptions to arise. You might think of something like climate science, where you have many different teams, many different individuals building models and some of their way they're structured, some of the factors they incorporate are different. So there's some independence among how they're instantiated. Nevertheless, there's a cultural, I almost said cultural climate, maybe that's a little confusing. Oh, well, that can inject more subtle non-independence into the assumption set. And so even when we do have a nice model, even if it's very robust, I'm always, always, always hyper cautious of committing too much to any action that's solely coming out of a, a modeling prediction, even on an ensemble. But I do agree with your, your main point that, yeah, we're not talking about, you know, r- run the, the deterministic model forward in time and think that that's how the system goes. No, the real world is always messier than that. And ensembles are the right way to think. And even interestingly, which, you know, you mentioned NNT, Nassim, we often think of running ensembles so that we can think of the, the distribution of possibilities into the future. But we actually have a lot of uncertainty about the past as well. And thinking about the past in terms of ensembles actually makes a lot of sense too. Hmm, we only have one past. We only have one, but this is about knowledge of the past. And it's actually very difficult to transmit, you know, perfect fidelity, what actually happened in any given situation. And in fact, if you take seriously the idea of just, just think of a simple fixed point attractor. And if say more than one path, you know, converges any kind of many to one mapping, then in principle, we can't say which path led to it. Now we might have some nice evidence where we can reasonably say, but as a general point, it's a real problem with understanding kind of where we are and where we come from. Interesting. Yeah, you could uh, run the simulation backwards and it it won't give you the answer, but it will give you a set of things, uh, some of which could be close to the answer. Right, exactly. That is actually pretty interesting. Uh, What do you think of climate science? I know you've written a little bit. I saw your one pager that you wrote with some other folks. What are your thoughts about climate science and how we should think about it and how we should think about, as we know, a fair amount of the argument is based on modeling. Uh, Where is your head as a complexity, applied complexity guy around climate science? Well, you know, the letter we wrote was really a companion piece to our our larger piece on what we call a non-naive precautionary principle. And with respect to climate, we're sort of making a point that I think is essential for someone to be making. And we have this kind of polarized discussion where we're saying there's sort of the believers and the deniers and the believers say, here's what the models are saying. Here's the scientific consensus they're saying. So here's why we should be worried about climate. And the deniers are saying, you know, either this is a funded agenda or this is the models are bunk and so we shouldn't be worried about it. But the interesting thing is we all can agree that the climate is important. If it goes outside a range or becomes too volatile, then that's very bad for living systems, including us and all of the life support systems we depend on. So the implication of having poor models that do a bad job of predicting is not at all, well, don't worry about it then. It's actually the opposite. It says if we really have trouble predicting this system and we don't know what's going to happen, then we should probably exercise an abundance of precaution around this system and we should do what we can to mitigate our contribution to that unpredictability. And and in this case, that contribution could be, say, a large, coherent uh, expulsion of CO2. And, you know, we don't need to necessarily understand the exact trajectory of dynamics that will unfold to know that if you have a complex system, if it's large scale in this case, if it's essential for life, and if you perturb it with a large scale force, say a lot of CO2 coming out at once, then you're easily contributing to the destabilization of what is likely a meta stable system. So that's our precautionary principle approach to the climate problem. And the more uncertainty we have around the models, the more we need to move forward with an abundance of caution and not assume that, oh, well, you know, if the models aren't great at predicting, then we're fine. Don't worry about it. And I would also add, this is something I always look for, is get away from just data and look at causality. There is a base causality around climate, which everybody needs to keep in mind, which is it's an absolute 
easily provable physical chemical finding that if you build a system and add greenhouse gases into it and radiate light into that system uh, and have it reflect back as infrared, more energy will be stored in the system that has more greenhouse gases. So that's a very important base fact, which some of the deniers don't even seem to know, right? That is true. And the question then becomes, from my perspective, what are the other agents in the system that might then start feeding back and alter that particular trajectory? So, for instance, like Freeman Dyson has talked about, well, the earth is greening and, you know, you have all the CO2 in the atmosphere. That means that plants grow more easily. So the earth is greening. So you can have some kind of feedback effects. Now, he's really arguing that uh, once again, oh, it's no problem. It will kind of stabilize out. I don't see any reason to believe that a priori. But certainly, yes, you, you have some pretty sound science there that says, given these assumptions, um, yes, you will have more energy in the system. And that means that you expect to enter a different regime than you're currently in, which for us is probably not a good thing. Now, now, to your point, there are many, many side loops, for instance, uh, in climate models, probably the least bound element in the simulations around cloud formation with increased water vapor in the atmosphere. Right. And say, well, why is that important? Because clouds are far more reflective of light than the earth or the water is. Uh, so, you know, if cloud formation as water vapor cycles operate faster and faster in the atmosphere, as temperature starts to rise a little bit, uh, it is possible that cloud formation could be the adapter that essentially constrains the system. But the best models we have show that while it makes a significant difference in the rate of run up, it is nowhere near enough to stop the run up. At least that's the models I'm familiar with. The other second biggest one is the absorption of CO2 into the oceans. Now, that's only a short-term fix because the long-term problem is, let's assume somehow magically, which does not appear to be the correct from the physical chemistry, that all the CO2, excess CO2 is absorbed in the ocean. The end result is an acidic ocean with all kinds of dire effects, right? And I think that's for whatever reason, that's been one of the more downplayed aspects of the danger is the acidification of oceans and what that means for whole earth ecosystems. And then, of course, in this particular case, we'll talk about the precautionary principle in general later, but in the area of climate, there's also side loops, and we can see it in the geological record that it's happened, where we could move from, you know, worst case scenario, five degrees C by 2100 to 15 degrees C by 2100 if we get into a positive feedback loop. For instance, there are methane ices in shallow waters all around the world. Methane is kind of an odd gas in that it solidifies into an ice at surprisingly low pressure. And of course, it's a triple point with pressure and temperature. And you know, if the water temperatures rise in those shallow waters enough to let loose those methane ices, and there's huge quantities of them, much more than the amount of methane known to be available in natural gas wells, that could cause a very rapid run up. And they even say it's a small rapid run up, but if it turns out there's lots of these ices, methane ices at uh, low depths of the water and they're not have not been fully mapped. You could get a positive feedback loop where a sharp but relatively small rise in temperature causes more methane ices to evaporate into the water and bubble up into the air and we could rapidly spin up to uh, something like a 15 degree C, 25, 26 degree F increase by 2100 which would be truly disastrous and so the nature of our system with these side loops that could drive positive feedback is a particular reason to consider the precautionary principle. Yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously there are potential, as you put them, side loops that have negative feedback, but really that's what we're not sure about. You've mentioned this one particular one. How many have we not identified yet? How many potential uh, sort of positive feedback loops, points of instability are there lurking that we know nothing about right now and we don't want to find out the hard way? We do know from the geological record that it has happened. From the uh, Greenland ice cores, uh, we have found periods where temperatures have jumped 15 C in 50 years. That would be catastrophic. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the precautionary principle. I read carefully your paper on GMOs. Mm -hmm. I will say it's a paper on precautionary principle and we, we use the application as GMOs for, as an example case. Yeah, and use nuclear power as a counterexample case. And I will say I walked into it with a farmer's bias. That sounds like bullshit, right? But on the other hand, by the time I was finished reading it, I said, hmm, maybe they're right. But I'd like to probe into that one a little bit and uh, see if we can clarify my thinking and maybe yours. Why don't you 
tell the story and use it from the GMO perspective, and maybe if you want to compare and contrast with nuclear, on the uh, story you were telling in that paper. We've been doing for a long time, frankly, a corporate talking point is sort of we've been modifying organisms forever, which is true. We've been doing it from an artificial selection standpoint. Now, what is happening with GMO is this kind of top down design thinking where we're saying, okay, we have this ability to, say, insert trans genes into organisms and elicit desirable properties and then use those as cultivars in agriculture. So there's actually quite a few problems here, but one of the fundamental issues is that these designs that these folks are imagining, these sort of whole system design of kind of reimagining every facet of agriculture are making a lot of simplifying assumptions around what the complexities of agriculture actually are and, and the way complex systems work and how they push back on things. So just as a very sort of well-known example, herbicidal resistance is often engineered into these organisms. Well, lo and behold, the herbicide is used a lot on these crops so that the crops live and the weeds die. Well, the weeds evolve herbicidal resistance, right? So there's these assumptions that aren't built into their top-down design that they're now reacting to, but are not something they imagined happening. There's other issues, specific issues, like the fact that, you know, they claim the pesticide usage levels are way down, but they're not accounting for the fact that all of these organisms are generating, producing, BT pesticides inside of them, inside of each cell, endogenously producing these proteins. So the idea that the count of application is down doesn't re- represent what's actually in there. And, and that specifically has the problem of, well, you can't wash that off. And other problems as well is, you know, what's happening to the pollinator populations. These are designed to serve as insecticides for these crops. So those are some specific issues. The general issue is we are tinkering with, we are playing with, we are trying to design systems within ecosystems where runaway cascade effects can happen in ecosystems. They do happen. And we're now doing long range, you could call it long range transport of features of biology, protein synthesized that can have massive effects on the ecosystems they're inserted to. So as we address in the paper, the idea isn't that the activity of modifying the organism is in and of itself dangerous or risky. The issue is we are without any sense of the potential cascade effects. We are releasing these into the environment and we're not doing it on a small scale. We're in a large scale synchronized fashion, releasing novel organisms into the environment. And when we're thinking about the potential for cascades, say ecological cascade or viral cascade or or epidemic cascade, you know, you think of the Irish potato famine as, as an example of, of where a cascade can really have an effect on crops. There's no clear upper bound at which if we move into a space with these kinds of effects, at which they'll stop. And, and what you end up with, because you have these potential for contagion, you have this potential for cascade, you end up with fat tail distributions as opposed to thin tailed ones, meaning very large events can happen. And those events are almost certainly not in our favor. And there's no obvious upper bound at which if something like that did start to unfold, there would be a kind of circuit breaker, you might call it, or like a boundary that causes the process to stop. And so the idea isn't to predict one or other feature that is the major problem, but to recognize that we're playing in a space with living organisms that have all of the features that contribute to cascading uh, fat tails. And we're now going above and beyond the statistical search space of artificial selective processes. So we're selecting this tomato over that tomato and growing from that seed. We're now saying, I think tomatoes should be resistant to this pest and they should generate this pesticide so that this pest can't get them. And injecting that across a huge number of tomatoes that are all very genetically similar and projecting it actively worldwide and replacing other more time-tested systems with these kinds of systems as another kind of bonus risk. And so the idea is, okay, we're definitely in a a systemic regime where fat tails exist. We definitely don't have the analytic uh, nor modeling and simulation tools to exhaustively look at the possible trajectories of this. We're not treating this as a risk to environmental exposure, but we are exposing the environment to it in a massive way. And so you start to stack up these, these different features and you see that this is a situation where um, we're imagining these benefits 
you know, I hate the corporate talking points because they're, they're frankly unethical, but you know, oh, don't you want to feed the world? Is this could feed the world? And your way won't for whatever reason, even though that's obviously a straw man, there's a lot of different approaches that don't pose the same risk that could indeed feed the world. So you're stacking all of these risks up and you're pointing to these benefits. And the fact of the matter is that when you have these potential downsides, there's no uh, finite amount of benefits you can kind of articulate and tack on that justify taking the risk of collapsing ecosystems, which we all depend on, which agriculture depends on, which we depend on for so many of our, our life support systems. Yeah, this is where I'd want to push back a little bit, right? We quickly uh, were able to describe some very serious ecosystem risks around climate, you know, positive feedback loops, historical records, et cetera. And we also talked about uh, negative feedback loops that might ameliorate it. When we think about GMOs, I have yet to see a compelling causal story on how a GMO plant uh, could cause widespread devastation in the uh, ecosystem. Let's take you know one example. Okay, I'll take, I'll give you an example. Let's use cotton. It's the uh, number one GMO plant, or maybe you have another one. We can use corn, cotton, soy. These are the ones that are mostly monocropped. So obviously you have at the level of human nourishment, the ability to eat, you have the risks of massive amounts of monoculture coming out of this sort of unprecedented levels of monoculture. Now, monoculture is a, is a risk regardless of GMO, but GMO really exacerbates the degree of monoculture that we're talking about here. We're talking globally. So if you did have some kind of a viral event or, or any kind of pathogen event, this can spread now worldwide and the effect on our food system, our food supply could be massive. And imagine all the other interconnected, interdependent human systems once the food system starts to be stressed that hard. Okay. So, so there's one. Let's stop there because what you just described is the danger of monoculture, not the uh, danger of GMO. And we had horrendous monoculture long far back. Uh, as we probably know, like 95% of our bananas are all clones of one banana. It's astounding. And apples were way more monoculture than they are now. I've never, as a globe, mostly eaten apples nor mostly eaten bananas, but more and more, we are mostly eating corn, mostly eating soy. And we're talking about these crops. And the GMO in this case is a enabler of a degree of monoculture that didn't exist before at least early before, you know, the patents expire, et cetera, uh, may actually drive diversity if people take different GMO approaches. So I would say you're arguing against monoculture, which I strongly agree with. We can have a wonderful conversation about that. It may be that GMO is an accelerant, but it is not, I would say, in in this first argument, not the uh, fundamental. Well, you say it could be an accelerant, but, but as we know well from complex system science, more is different. So when you, when you speed something up that quickly, you can quickly end up in a qualitatively different regime. And that's what we're positing, we're experiencing with this. So yes, you can get there other ways, but getting there faster implies much more risk. So one could throw out a counter way to regulate, right? Rather than being Europe and banning GMOs, let's say uh, we could have an anti-monoculture rule. We could uh, require that no more than 20% of any grain crop can be within X DNA uh, hamming distance of the rest of the crop. And so force diversity rather than ban the technology. You could, what you'll find, I mean, in a realistic application of that. So let's say we wanted that as a policy. What, what would happen? Well, the value proposition to global corporations would drop rapidly because their whole value prop is really about this. It's actually hard to develop a GMO line. So they kind of hit every once in a while something that makes sense for their profit model and they deploy it in sync. So you would experience a lot of pushback on that policy via regulatory capture from these large corporations. So just in terms of real world implementation of a policy like that. So let's imagine that somehow we could get such a policy implemented. I agree that'd be a great mitigant. Would that mitigate all of the risks of GMO? No, not necessarily. We have other issues like crossbreeding. Things are promiscuous in nature, you know, from bacteria to plants. And there is very good evidence of these traits not staying confined into the the crops themselves, but actually crossbreeding into wild grasses and things. For instance, there's a very interesting study in Switzerland that has had from, uh, you know, day zero, a total ban on the cultivation or import of GMO. And what you find are grasses that have crossbred and have these traits along the train tracks. Well, why along the train tracks? Because there's some kind of a 
a pollination event that's happening uh, via the trains traveling themselves. So there's all of these kinds of dynamics that we're not factoring in about how things spread. And when we're talking about spreading these traits, well, what traits? Well, there's some, frankly, propaganda around, oh, they could be traits that are for drought tolerance, or they could be traits for, you know, vitamin A so that people don't go blind and things. But in reality, the only traits that have found any utility are herbicidal resistance and insecticide production. And so we could imagine a different universe in which um, some other trade is discovered. Now, when we go back to the, this is a little different, no free lunch than we were talking about before, but there's no free lunch in terms of, you know, you're going to engineer in drought tolerance. Well, well, something's got to give. So what, what does that mean? A lot of this stuff is, is more fantastical than practical, but in essence, we're talking about systems that can do many things. So monocrop is one of the features crossbreeding and spreading proteins and amplifying certain proteins that might say serve as insecticides throughout an ecosystem present another source of systemic risk. So we need pollinators. I don't really buy the idea that we can replace all the pollinators with little robots and everything will be fine. We need these ecosystem cyclers and connector nodes and pollinators are a huge one of those. And we're also now we're having wild plants that are growing insecticide in ways that no other plant was growing them before. Now plants in general do often have insecticidal qualities, but you're presenting a very novel exposure in short order in a way that doesn't respect something we talked about before, the co-evolutionary dynamics of ecosystems. Now ecosystems generally play nice precisely because there's so much co-evolution happening. As an example of a non-GMO issue that we all recognize that is related to this, is invasive species. Why are invasive species invasive? You were talking about those weeds. Well, it's because they're now in a new context that they weren't in before. And so they lack the co-evolutionary history of that ecosystem. And so there's not the proper push and pull that develops over time. So how does that proper push and pull develop? It's through co-evolution and frankly, small local extinction events when co-evolution doesn't satisfy, you know, when it ends up in a kind of Malthusian extinction. And so it somehow uh, something undercuts its own resource or or assumption set of survival. And so without this co-evolutionary process, we're really playing with fire here. And it's not just monoculture, it's systemic perturbation of ecosystem functioning. That's possible, but let's say there's a hop to a specific grass in a specific region, back to your paper, wouldn't that fall into the limited category? Say it's a specific grass that lives at a certain elevation in the highlands of Central Europe in Switzerland, right? If that is what happens, yes. But the issue is we can't exhaustively say all the ifs that might occur with this. And we are certainly in a space where massive spread beyond such bounds are possible. So there is every possibility in the world that, yes, some event could happen that would then be contained and bounded. Of course, you know, this is inherent in the idea of, of say, a, a power law distribution. There's many, 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 many small events. What the problem is, is that every once in a while you have a very, very big event. And, and these are what we're worried about, not the, the many small events. I did like that part of your argument. And I will say it will cause me to think about this more, but I would say I'm not yet convinced because I would put the challenge back to you and, and the people you work with to come up with a causal mechanism by which plant-based pests could go out of control on a worldwide basis, as opposed to perhaps do some damage to a local ecosystem where a given species in which there was a hop occurred. Uh, but we know no plant species are ubiquitous around the world. Well, the thing that's changing that is our agriculture and our international transport. So more and more, we are getting species that are very widespread, crops that are very widespread with very little genetic diversity. So I appreciate the pushback, frankly. I think it's always good to kind of sharpen the sword and to question one's assumptions. Another relevant piece that comes to mind with respect to the precautionary principle and how we're presenting it is what is the supposed problem that this innovation is addressing or this intervention is addressing and are there other ways that present a lot less uncertainty to address this and in the case of agriculture there is all the promise in the world of other approaches that not only don't present the risks that GMO presents, but also have a lot of other positive externalities that mitigate a lot of other risks we face, for instance, around soil erosion and things of that nature. And, you know, that feeds back into carbon sequestration and all these other issues. So it's not only that there's risks, it's that we have alternatives that don't present the same risks. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And that would be a wonderful discussion. And at some point in the future, I'm going to do a whole month on uh, forward thinking agriculture. And I'll, maybe I'll have you back. We can talk just about this topic. Unfortunately, Joe, we're out of time. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. It's everything I was hoping it would be. And I really like to thank you for being on the Jim Rutt Show. I want to thank you for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. No, I always appreciate talking to you to Jim and I hope we talk soon and, you know, on the show or otherwise. Thanks, Joe. It's been great. And we'll talk soon. Production services and audio editing by Stanton Media Lab. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com. Music.